Good morning. Let me invite the little ones to meet your teachers in the back. As they do that, let me pray for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we rejoice. We rejoice that we have a word from you and we praise you. We are thankful uh, that we gather as one church among many. We praise you for other churches in this city, Capitol Hill Baptist and Grace D.C. and Grace Capital City and Church of the Resurrection and Church of the Advent. We pray for them as they gather this morning that you would bless them. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. We pray for our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who are laboring amongst the unreached. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Haiti laboring to strengthen pastors and churches there. Father, we're so thankful that we're part of a universal church that's so much bigger than we are. And we praise you for this reminds us of your magnitude and your majesty. And so we pray that as we open up your word this morning at this church, that you would be at work, that you would remind us that we are part of a people, we are not just individuals, that you would remind us that your word is living and active, that you would remind us that we have assurance in Christ, and that you would draw us all the more near to you, that you would promote the gospel unity among us, and that you would use us to advance the fame of Jesus Christ, that you would use this church to see people come to know and trust and taste the pleasures and the joy of Jesus. Perhaps even someone here for the first time this morning, you would do that, Lord. We ask that you would. And all God's people said, Amen. Uh, Well, my name is Joey. I'm one of the pastors here. I preach about once a month, uh, or in this case, this week and next week. Uh, So um, if you want to look ahead, we're going to start the book of Judges in a few weeks, but over the next couple of weeks, we'll be hitting a couple of strategic sermons. Uh, And this morning we'll be in Hebrews chapter 4. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. But it is the first Sunday of the new year, and so I think I'm obligated to ask, how are the resolutions coming? Are you eating more vegetables? That was mine. So far, so good. Uh, Are you working out an hour a day like you said you would? How about the Bible reading plan? Are you still on it? Have you stopped spending and started saving yet? Have you had more self-control to not look at your phone first thing in the morning? Well, here's something to spur you on. According to U.S. News, approximately 80% of your resolutions will fail by the second week of February. The vast majority of people struggle to keep the resolutions. Now, aren't you encouraged? But here's what I hope you see this morning. Struggle and weaknesses are not necessarily bad. We all have struggles and we all have weaknesses. And I propose to you, that's a good thing. So what I hope you see this morning is realizing this, accepting this, embracing this is actually where we find true strength and happiness. True hope comes not in self-made strength, but in admitting our struggles and embracing our weaknesses. Or to say it another way, true hope and happiness doesn't come from pretending to be perfect, but from holding fast and drawing near to the one who is perfect, Jesus Christ. So that's what we see in Hebrews, specifically in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. 
So if I were to summarize the entire book of Hebrews, I would say this. Jesus is supreme, so trust him in all things and treasure him above all things. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. It's about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so from the very opening words of Hebrews, we read this. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him, he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So in the first chapter of Hebrews, we read that Jesus is God's final word. He is greater than the prophets and he is greater than the angels. In chapter two, we read that Jesus is greater than the devil and Jesus is greater than death. In chapter 3, we read that Jesus is the greater Moses. In chapter 4, we read that Jesus is the greater Joshua, and he is the great Sabbath rest. The author of Hebrews wants us to know the supremacy of Christ. And he wants us to know it like we know the deliciousness of cinnamon and sugar. Not just as if looking at the jar but as it dissolves upon your tongue. So chapter after chapter, verse after verse, the author drops the sweet supremacy of Christ on the taste bud of our souls that we might savor Jesus, who is supreme. That we might trust him and treasure him. And that theme continues in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Let's read that. Since then, we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. So here in this passage, we find hope for tempted and tired believers. This passage speaks to the weak and needy that we might find balm for our souls. So if that's you this morning, God has a word for you. If you're here and you're not trusting in Christ, I hope that you see that this is where true satisfaction is found. I'm thankful that you're here, but I'm guessing you're here because there's something inside of you that's dissatisfied. You're not content. And this passage is pointing to the one thing or the one person that will fulfill every desire that you have. So in this text, we see two exhortations or what I'll call two invitations. You see it there in verse 14. Let us hold fast. And then you see it there in verse 16. Let us draw near. So that's our outline. Invitation number one. Hold fast to Jesus. Invitation number two, draw near to God through Jesus. And we're going to look at each of those. And just so you know, we will spend the vast majority of our time on the first one. So when I get to the second one, don't be like, oh my goodness, we're going to be here till one o'clock. <laughs> Invitation number one, hold fast to Jesus. Look at the end of verse 14 again. Let us hold fast our confession. What's that confession? In a word... The confession is Jesus. 
Glance back over to chapter 3, verse 1. See what it says. Consider who? Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hebrews wants us to consider Christ, to confess Christ, to cling to Christ, to trust in Christ. Jesus is all we need. In the first couple of chapters, I already mentioned the supremacy of Christ, but listen to these things that tells us about Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is truly and fully God. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 17. He himself likewise partook of flesh and blood and made like his brothers in every respect. He is truly and fully human. Chapter 2, verse 17. He made propitiation, that is atonement, for the sins of the people. He's the sacrifice for the sins of all who trust him. This is our confession. This is what we believe. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Savior. And this confession is not just about what we say. It's about who we love. It's not just about professing Christ, but possessing him, having faith in him, trusting him. And so we take hold, we cling to Christ, loving him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the text gives us two reasons why we should hold on to Christ. Because of his supremacy and because of his sympathy. First, hold fast to Christ Jesus because he is supreme. Look at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest. The author introduces the language of high priest back in chapter 2. And it's a thread that's woven through Hebrews all the way until chapter 10. And notice what the text says. It's a great high priest. Do you know the Bible has plenty of high priests? But it reserves the title of great high priest for Christ alone. No one else is called a great high priest. To us, the language of high priest may not mean a whole lot, but remember who the author of Hebrews was writing to. He was writing to primarily a Jewish audience that was facing persecution. They were being tempted to renounce the faith. They were being tempted to give in to worldly comforts or worldly religion because of the persecution, because it was hard to follow Jesus. And so he's calling to mind with the language of high priest, the entire Jewish sacrificial system. See, the priest administered sacrifices and offerings. They were the mediators between people and God. Just look down a couple of verses to chapter 5, verse 1. We see it there. For every high priest chosen from among men to do what? It's appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices. There's your definition of a priest. They were the go-between, providing access to God. And so to modernize it a little bit, it might help if we think if, if you were to walk up to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, jump the fence, and try to make your way directly to the Oval Office, it wouldn't go so well. You need some inside help. 
to get access to one who has authority like that. And in a much more profound way, the priests were the inside help that provided access to God. And one of the most significant duties came on what's called the Day of Atonement. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 16. But on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel would first make a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice for his own sins to clean himself up. And then he would go and make some sacrifices for the people and their sin. And he would, he would go through into the temple, the outer gate, into the inner court, and then eventually he would make himself too where there's this veil in front of him. And on the other side of this veil was the Holy of Holies, symbolizing the presence of God Almighty. And on that day, only the high priest, and only after making sacrifice for his own sins, would go in and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, symbolically atoning for the sins of the people, and he wouldn't stay. He would go. So only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and he could only do it once a year, and he could only do it after making a sacrifice for his own sins, and he could only stay in there for a short time. Then throughout the year, the people would continually make sacrifices, waiting and waiting and waiting for the day of atonement. Well, what are we to do today? There's no temple. There is no earthly high priest. Yet God is still holy. And we still transgress him. Again, this is not just in our actions. It's in our affections. It's what we just confessed. Our sin is not just what we do. It's deeper. It's disordered love. So what are we to do? God still rightly demands payment for our glory-robbing, God-belittling transgressions. So what do we do? We hold fast to Christ. We hold fast to our great high priest, Jesus, the perfect and permanent mediator between God and man. Look at verse 14 again. Jesus is the great high priest who what? Who passed through the heavens, the text says. Unlike earthly high priests, Jesus did not pass through an earthly veil of an earthly temple. After Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into the heavens, into the very presence of God. And unlike earthly high priests, Jesus does not repeat this ritual every year. His sacrifice is once for all. His atoning work is finished. Isn't this what he said from the cross? It is finished. That's why Jesus is seated, not standing and working, seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Can you see it? The work is never done. Never done. She can never take away sins. But... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The work is done. And back in Hebrews chapter 4, notice the text. It says, we have a great high priest. That's present tense. 
Jesus is alive. Every other high priest lived and died. But Jesus lived, died, and rose again, ascended bodily into heaven, never to die. Jesus is the final, the eternal, the supreme, the all-sufficient priest, the go-between between a sinful people and a holy God. He is supreme in his position, sitting down at the right hand of God, but he's also supreme in his person, Verse 14, Jesus, Son of God. The name Jesus reminds us of his humanity. The title, Son of God, reminds us of his deity. And at the end of verse 15, what do we see? He is without sin. So again, unlike previous priests who were sinful humans who had to make a sacrifice for their own sins and for the people's sins, that's not like Jesus. Jesus is fully God and fully human who needs no sacrifice for his own sins. He offers himself up as the ultimate sacrifice. So Jesus didn't take the blood of bulls and goats into the heavenly temple, nor did he take human, finite, flawed sacrifice. He took his very own self as the eternal Ultimate, infinite, perfect sacrifice. So Jesus lived a perfect, worship-filled life, earning God's blessing and obedience. Perfect. Jesus died on a cross, absorbing God's wrath, the curse for disobedience. And Jesus rose from the dead and sends his spirit to indwell all those who trust in him alone to sanctify them and indwell them when we trust in him. Now, all those who trust in Christ are not just pardoned from our guilt. We're promised a relationship with God himself. The penalty of sin is paid. The power of sin is destroyed. And one day the presence of sin will be eliminated. That's our heavenly hope a fully restored world in God's presence with his people forever, enjoying him together, satisfying our souls. So God in his infinite kindness sent Jesus to do what we could not do, what we did not want to do, to give us everything that would satisfy us forever, himself. And so if we don't understand ourselves to be rebellious against God, Jesus has nothing to give to us. So there's nothing we can do to clean ourselves up before God. We can't go to church enough. We can't read our Bible enough. We can't keep our New Year's resolutions enough. We can't give enough money. We can't do enough religious good deeds. As I've said before, trying to clean ourselves up before God is like telling a two-year-old to clean up after a spaghetti dinner. It just moves the mess around. It doesn't accomplish anything. See, our problem with God needs a divine solution from God. And here's where we see the importance of the humanity and the deity of Jesus. Jesus, the God-man, is the perfect mediator. So a mediator is only effective if he's agreeable to both parties. And in this case, you have God and humanity. So Jesus must be agreeable to both parties. So as truly, fully human, Jesus is the perfect representative of humanity. As truly and fully God, he can speak to God on God's terms. As the God-man, he can bring humanity back to God. 
See, Jesus is the perfect, perfectly qualified priest that bridges the gulf between us and God. Jesus is the only one who qualifies to be our perfect and our permanent mediator. Bringing us back into the presence of God when we trust in him, when we hold fast to him. And again, it's important that you notice verse 14 again. Those first two words. Since then. Or as some of your translations might say, so or therefore or because. It's crucial to remember that it's because we have a great high priest who's holding on to us that we can then hold on to him. The call to hold fast our confession is not try harder, do better, earn God's love and approval. It's a lavish invitation to rest in Christ's finished work. Living a new and a holy life, awaiting the heavenly rest to come. So what we do is based entirely on what Christ has already done. The decisive factor is not the strength of your whole, but the supremacy of your high priest. The decisive factor is not the strength of your hold on to Christ, but his supremacy and his hold on to you. And so hold fast to Jesus because he's supreme, holding fast to you. Unless you think he's so supreme that he cannot identify you, identify with you or understand you. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we hold fast to Jesus not only because he's supreme, but also because of his sympathy. So this verse, I've been meditating on it for a while, and it's really, really, really been comforting to my soul. Um, So Jesus understands us. He's been tempted like us. That's that's amazing. And we'll, we'll talk about those in a minute. But one of the things that's been really... For, for months, has been comforting to my soul is actually the absence of something in this verse. And nowhere in this verse do you see the word if. This verse doesn't say if you have temptations. This verse doesn't say if you have weaknesses. This verse doesn't say if you have needs. It flat out assumes that we have weaknesses and temptations. I don't know about you, but that's been comforting to me. So all of us have weaknesses. And this is not just talking about sin. It's talking about we're finite. We fail. We're flawed. And we all have temptations. We all struggle with sin. We all struggle with loving God most. And so this verse for me has been like a, a valve releasing unrelenting pressure on my soul. So if you're like me, you've got internal pride that bubbles up and external expectations that, that press in, that tempt us, that want to force us to pretend like everything is okay, to, to pretend like you're better than you are, you're stronger than you are, you're more capable than you are. And so... Facebook and Instagram and Twitter call us to 
publicly broadcast our perfection while our private Google searches reveal our imperfection? I was walking around Walmart when I was back in Atlanta for Christmas, and I was thinking about this, and I saw those massive, like, 12-inch Santa Claus chocolates that are wrapped in foil. You know what I'm talking about? If you don't, just wait until Easter, and you're going to see some bunny rabbits that are like life-size bunny rabbits wrapped in foil. And on the outside, they're, they're beautifully designed. You know, it looks big and delicious. You give one to a kid, and they just think they've hit the jackpot because there's just loads of chocolate. And then they take a bite. And they realize it's all a big scam. It's hollow. It's empty. And there's nothing in it. And we're tempted to live our Christian lives the same way. Fully wrapped lives that appear put together and look good on the outside. But if we live this way, will be empty on the inside. So Christian brother and sister, you don't have to pretend. You don't have to filter your Christian life so it's a pretty Instagram picture. You don't have to wrap your life in pretty foil. You don't have to. Verse 15 tells us who we are. We're weak, We're tempted, we're needy, it's okay to not be okay. And that doesn't have to define you. When we embrace this, when we understand this, it'll lead us to Jesus. So in our weakness, we actually become strong because it leads us back to the one who is strong. That's beautiful. That's hope-giving. So here's here's a New Year's resolution for you. Admit your struggles, embrace your weakness, and confess your sin. Notice what I didn't say. I didn't say be defined by your struggles and weaknesses. I didn't say use your sorrows and your struggles to get people's attention. No. Admit your struggles, embrace your weaknesses, confess your sins, but none of that has to define you. If you're trusting in Christ alone, he alone's define you. Let his righteousness, his purity make you strong and complete resist the temptation to find your identity in something less than the perfection of christ and resist the temptation to be driven toward despair and anxiety because you're messed up jesus is found in struggle and weakness not self-sufficient strength when when we hold fast to christ what defines us is not our weakness but god's grace And God will use our weaknesses to bring glory to himself, which brings joy to our souls. This is how massively kind God is. So there's a story, maybe some of you have heard of it. It's about a man who carried water from a stream to his master's house. And each day, this man would take a pole, and he'd put it on his neck, and he'd put a pot on each side of the pole, and he'd walk down to the stream and fill it up with water. Well, one pot was perfect. The other pot had a crack in it. So for two years, this man did this every day. But every trip back, he only delivered 
one and a half pots of water. And so the perfect pot became proud of its accomplishments. The imperfect cracked pot became ashamed of its imperfections. And so one day the the cracked pot spoke to the man who carried him. And he said, I'm ashamed of myself. Why? asked the man. What are you ashamed of? The broken pot responded, because I'm flawed. I have a crack. Water leaks out of me all the way to the master's house. Because of my flaws, I'm not as good as the other pot. Well, the man felt sorry for the broken pot and in his compassion said, tomorrow, as we walk back to the master's house, I want you to notice the beautiful flowers along the path. So the next day, as they went up the hill, the broken pot noticed the sun warming the beautiful flowers along the path. And when they got to the top, the man said to the pot, did you notice that there were flowers only on one side of the path? That's because I always knew about your flaw and I took advantage of it. You see, I planted seeds of flowers along that side of the path because I knew every day when we walked back, your brokenness was going to let water out to water those flowers that they would bloom into beauty. So for two years, I've been able to decorate my master's house because of your brokenness. All of us are broken pots. We all have unique flaws. Admit your struggles. Embrace your weakness. Confess your sin. In God's great economy, He uses our failures, our flaws, to bring glory to his name. My friends, you're not trusting Christ this morning. I hope this is encouraging to you. Maybe you walked in here resolved to be a better person. You're like, well, I go to church for that. That's what those people think. They're better people. They're morally superior. They get dressed up nice on Sundays and come and talk about how great everything is. Well, Happy New Year. I hope that you see that's not exactly what we believe. Jesus comes not for the morally superior and the self-sufficient, but for the weak and needy who confess their sins, admit their struggles, and embrace their weaknesses. So at Restoration Church, we're a group of deeply flawed people. They're looking to Christ alone for hope and strength and salvation. And we invite you to join us. And when you do, you'll know that Jesus sympathizes with your weaknesses. That's what verse 15 tells us. You see that there? There's there's a double negative. It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So for all you mathematicians, a double negative makes a... Positive, yes, there we go. So it makes a positive. So in other words, Jesus is able to sympathize with us in what all we experience. And this sympathy is not just theoretical. It's not like the surgeon who knows an operation is going to be painful. No, Jesus' sympathy is like the patient who goes under the knife and experiences the pain himself. Jesus' sympathy is experiential. So Jesus knows our human frailty. Though fully God, he clothed themselves in the limitations of humanity. Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry and thirsty. He knows sleepless nights and tiring days. He knows physical pain and spiritual agony. 
Jesus knows the effects of living in a broken world. He knows the loss of a loved one. He knows the despair of loneliness. He knows the sting of abandonment by friends. He receives sharp words of criticism from those close to him and those far from him. He knows the shame of abuse and the humiliation of public scorn. And in every respect, he's been tempted as we are. So Jesus knows what it's like to be a frail human living in a broken world, battling the temptations of sin and the lies of Satan. Now, some of you might be thinking, really, Joey, he's been tempted in every respect like me? I don't think that's true. Jesus wasn't married. He didn't know what it's like to be tempted by his spouse. To get angry. Jesus didn't have the Internet. He wasn't tempted to look at things he wasn't supposed to. Jesus didn't have to take the red line. (laughs) He wasn't tempted towards selfish impatience. Right? And so you'd be correct in a sense anyway. So it's not saying Jesus is tempted exactly like you, but essentially and foundationally in every way. Like us. So there were parties tempting Jesus toward gluttony and drunkenness. There were endless opportunities to lie and cheat and steal for personal gain. Jesus had women admirers tempting him toward lust and immorality. He was surrounded by not-so-smart disciples tempting him toward pride and selfish impatience. He saw material possessions of others and the lack of his own was tempted to covet. He was betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends. He wrestled with God in prayer all night, was tempted to doubt God and God's goodness. The list goes on. See, Jesus knows the battle against sin. He experienced the fullness of Satan's temptations through the limitations of human weakness. And he knows temptation more than we do because he never gave in. He won the battle every time. Jesus was tempted and tested just like we are. So we have a high priest who understands us and has compassion for us. We hold fast to Jesus knowing he has experienced everything we ever have or will. God doesn't stand far off from our suffering. He enters into it. He doesn't look at our weaknesses and mock us. He sympathizes with us because he's gone before us. He doesn't ignore us or overlook us. No. God looks down and he kisses us. It's how a Christian leader named Bernard of Clairvaux, who lived about a thousand years ago, spoke of Christ. He said the incarnation, Jesus entering into humanity, and the crucifixion, Jesus giving himself up on the cross, was the kiss of God. So just like a kiss at a wedding, wedding publicly showcases the love of a bride and a groom, the work of Christ on earth showcases his love for his bride, the church. And this reminded me of a story that I've shared with you some time ago, but I want to share it again. It's a story of a young husband who sits in a recovery room where his wife lies, her face is post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish looking. And that tiny twig of the facial nerve, the muscle to her mouth, had been severed. Her mouth would be disfigured from now on. And so she looks at the doctor. Will my mouth always be this way? She slurs. The doctor responds. Yes, it will. 
She's silent. But her husband looks at her and says, I like it. It's kind of cute. And then he bends over and he twists his lips to accommodate hers and kisses her to let her know their kiss still works. Though weak, she knows she's intimately loved. In Christ, God twists his lips to kiss us in our weakness so that we'll know his love. So I don't know what you're struggling with this morning. But I'm sure some of you are spiritually exhausted, thinking about giving up on church or your community group or at least moving to the fringes. Maybe you're battling lies of shame from being abused or intimately violated. Maybe you're just not happy with where you are in life. You thought you'd be married by now. You thought you'd have kids by now. You thought you'd have a better job title by now. Maybe you're fighting lustful temptations. Battling. Not wanting to give in. Maybe you already have. Maybe you're experiencing the hurt of betrayal by a close friend. Maybe it's the unrelenting stress of job and parenting that just won't let up. I don't know what your struggle is. But Jesus does. And he twists his lips to kiss you if you would hold fast to him. So Restoration Church, let's help each other think about this year, the sympathy of Christ. How he gives us hope no matter what we face. Let's remind each other that it's okay to admit our struggles and embrace our weakness, confess our sins, because we have Christ. As we do that, we'll, we'll draw near together. That's our second invitation, draw near to God, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So here's the invitation. One of continually approaching God, drawing near to God with assurance and boldness. And remember, this is radically different than how the the people of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, approached God. Under the Old Covenant with earthly priests, the, the Israelites, the people of God had to keep their distance. If you read the Old Testament, people literally die from getting too close to God in unauthorized ways. Only the high priest was allowed to enter directly into God's presence only after making sacrifices, only once a year, only for a short time. But now something has changed. We don't have to wait all year to go to God. Our access is not, our access to God is not based on our goodness. We don't go with prescribed rituals and the actions of a mortal high priest. High priest. We have a great high priest who offered himself up. So now we can approach God, not with cowering fear, but confident boldness. That's the invitation of Hebrews 4. And our confidence is not based on how good we are. It's based on the grace of God, the finished work of Christ. So as we'll sing in just a moment, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever pleads for me. There it is. That's our confidence. We approach God with confidence and boldness because of Jesus. And what do we come to? Notice what the text says. We come to what? A throne of grace. We don't come to a throne of judgment 
brothers and sisters, we don't come to a throne of guilt. We come to a throne of grace. Realize the wonder of this word. Jesus hung on a tree of judgment that you might kneel at a throne of grace. He was forsaken by the Father that you might draw near. And what do we receive? Mercy. That's God's response to us in our misery, in our mess. It's his disposition to our sorrow and suffering. He's compassionate toward us. We find grace. That's God's unmerited favor. In Christ, God lavishes his grace upon us. That's who he is. And so we have the invitation in Christ to come to a throne of grace, to come to the one who says, cast all your cares on me because I love you. We come to the one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. We come to the one who says, come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. That's the invitation. And yet some of you here this morning are being blackmailed by Satan. He's using your past sin, your past debaucheries. Maybe the ones you're in right now to say, you can't go there. You can't go there. You're too messed up. Others of you thinking, well, it's not what I've done, but what's been done to me that leaves me so dirty and ashamed. I can't go to God. I can't draw near to the holy, perfect God. Don't believe the lies. Believe the promise of Hebrews 4. Draw near to God, not through your goodness, but His mercy and grace. Jesus pays our sin. Jesus takes our shame. He is the perfect and permanent mediator. You can draw near to God by trusting in Christ alone, by worshiping Him alone, by loving Him alone. Draw near to God. Treasure your access to God. It came at a price, Christian. Draw near to God by repenting of your sins and enjoying God's grace. Draw near to God by being meaningfully involved with other church members and helping them hold fast to Jesus. That's what we do together as God's church. We keep each other focused on Christ, holding fast to Christ, remembering He holds fast to us. Draw near to God by enjoying times of prayer. When we pray, we draw near to God. So I encourage you to do that individually. But also make it a point to pray corporately. Notice the language of this passage and the entire book of Hebrews. It is not I and me. It is we, us, our. And so we draw near to God through praying together as God's people. It's what we do on Sunday mornings. It's what we do at our members meetings. And every morning at 9.30, right across the, the atrium there, there's people that gather and pray. Make it a point to show up a few minutes early, once a month, every week, whatever it is, and just pray with God's people. Draw near to God. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Draw near to God. As you hold the bread, remember, you only draw near because he came near to us first. Emmanuel, God with us. As you hold and drink the juice, remember that it's Christ's blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. 
So if you're not trusting in Christ, you're, you're unwilling to repent of your sins. I hope you see there's no other way to have a relationship except through Jesus Christ, the great high priest. So this morning, will you confess your sin? Will you confess your shortcomings? Will you, will you admit your struggles, embrace your weaknesses? Maybe that's for the first time. If you want to know more about it, you can talk to me, you can talk to the person you came with. But come to Christ. So this year, here's my challenge for you. Resolve to admit your struggles, embrace your weaknesses, and confess your sin. Why? That's where true strength and hope and joy is found. You can get rid of the pressure of trying to be perfect. And you can come to Christ, the supreme and the sympathetic great high priest who brings you back to God. Hold fast to Jesus as he holds fast to you. Draw near to God through Jesus as he draws near to you. And when you do this, you'll receive mercy and find grace to help in every need or want or weakness or struggle that you have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have all that we need. We thank you that in Christ we have a supreme and a sympathetic high priest. We praise you that in Christ we have access to you. What a joy. So as we sing this morning, as we take the Lord's Supper, Holy Spirit, be at work. Remind us of all that we have. Remind us of what's most true about us is not what we can or can't do, what we have or haven't done, but because of Jesus, when we trust in him, he alone defines us. So we rejoice this morning and we praise you. We thank you for this message of Hebrews. Be at work. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.